So we're reading from Nehemiah in chapter 8, if you'd like to turn there now. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it out loud, aloud from daybreak till noon, as he faced the square before the water gates in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, on his right side, on his right stood Mattithiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zachariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day, do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered round Ezra, the teacher of the law, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the feast festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms and other leafy trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. 
and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with regulation, there was an assembly. Nearly there. What a joy it's been this afternoon. I really have enjoyed um, chatting with a number of you from different churches about what it's like and uh, things that are encouraging you uh, in your neck of the woods. I do find a great delight in it. I hope that you've had a chance too uh, to spend similar time chatting to each other and getting to know each other. And actually that that partnership might lead in God's good uh, purposes to great new gospel works being established and much encouragement for God's people here. Why don't we pray together as we begin our time in this part of Nehemiah. They celebrated with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Our Heavenly Father, as we turn our attention now to these last couple of chapters of this section, our prayer is that we would know both the understanding and the joy that comes from the understanding as your spirit works in us and among us this afternoon. Amen. Amen. So here is a question to get us back into this book this afternoon. Ready for this one? What would you say it is that defines the people of God? What do you think? What is it that ultimately marks us out from the people around us? I'm a member of a local tennis club where I live. And when I joined, they gave me this little plastic marker. I don't know if you have one of these things. You're meant to thread it through your shoelaces. And it sits just above your shoe so that uh, anybody can see immediately as you wander around the club, whether you're already part of the club or you're just some chancer walked off the street with a tennis racket in your hand. All of us who are genuinely part of the club have this thing, a clear mark on us that distinguishes us from the riffraff out there. What's the equivalent for the people of God? Take a moment and turn to the person next to you and see if you can come up with a few different answers, perhaps, to that question. What marks us out from the world around? Well, I don't know if that was an interesting little experiment. I don't know. There's obviously not one answer to a question like that, is there? There's not one correct thing you could say. You could go a number of ways. For example, you could say, well, our distinctive is that we're a people of faith. That would be a relatively obvious way to go. We trust in Jesus and what he's done for us to secure our futures. And in fact, we, we bear the outward mark of that. We've been, we've submitted to baptism. Or you could say, we're a people of love, a special kind of love. We treat each other as family. We care for each other. We serve each other. We pass on the love we've received from Jesus to one another. Or at heart, we're just a people of hope. We don't treat this life as the be-all and end-all. We, we, we've got our eyes on the future. When Jesus returns, we're investing in the new creation so we can give our money away we can chuck our ambition and ego away we can face frustration and rejection we can suffer we can wait because this life 
isn't everything. People of faith, they're people of love, people of hope. Uh, you recognize that little trio, won't you? I'm sure from your reading of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he comes back to those three characteristics uh, again and again as evidences that, yes, the Spirit is at work in these people, in this church. I guess there are other things, too, uh, that might be threaded on our laces, as it were, to mark us out as God's people. But here's the thing. Where do those things come from? Where did we learn them? Where did we find stimulus, impetus, motivation to express them? I take it the answer is, yes, we are a people of faith and a people of love and a people of hope and a people of whatever else you just mentioned to each other in that time together. But only because, first and foremost, we are a people of the word. We're those who listen when God speaks. We are those in whom God, by his spirit, has impressed his word on our hearts. Like a microwave oven, I suppose. Warmed us and enlivened us from the inside out. And that's what's prompted our faith, our love, our, our hope. We are a people of the word. But I, I wonder if it's possible to be slightly casual about that, a bit blasé. Yeah, sure, we're into the Bible. I've got one in front of me now. I've got one on my, my phone. I've got a few at home. What's the big deal? It is quite possible to lose the sense of wonder and privilege, the sense of occasion of encountering the living God, the creator God, the one who is awesome in, in majesty and splendor and authority. And, and of hearing that God speak into our lives, it is certainly possible to become casual about that encounter. But how shameful would it be if we did? Well, if there was ever an inoculation against casualness in the way we engage with God in his word, it would have to be found here in Nehemiah chapter 7, and chapter 8. Just a reminder of where we are in the book in case this afternoon's lunch and fun and sunshine-ish has been got our heads a bit fuzzy. In chapters 1 and 2, we saw the leadership of Nehemiah in kick-starting the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem after all those years of neglect. We saw how he felt the weight of the predicament deeply how he sought the Lord in prayer. He took the opportunity when it came, built the team, and he overcame the opposition. And so they began the project. In chapters 3 through to 6, the focus widened. Nehemiah was still front center. We found ourselves looking at how he and the community around him got on with the work of rebuilding, while at the same time enduring all sorts of opposition. There were mocking words. There were hostile actions. Closer to home, there was their own frailty and division in the ranks. But their reaction was that, well, they looked to God, and they got to work, and they stood together. And amazingly, as they did that, they confounded their enemies and completed the entire building project in just 52 days. Amazing feat of advancing the kingdom of God. 
But what is this newly rebuilt city going to stand for? What is going to mark those who live there? How will they be distinct from the people outside the walls? What stake would they put in the ground that will define their new life together? That's what we're going to be looking at in this final study of the day. Now, chapter 7, uh, right at the outset of this new era of history, the uh, people of the word are identified. They are named. Now, we didn't read this chapter, but have a look just over it now. You can see those names. Big, long list of people who were approved as genuinely eligible to become members of the new community in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 8, they are being effectively inducted into their new life. They're introduced to what will shape their community life more than anything else in this city. They are people of the word. But what does it actually mean for them? What does it mean to be people of the word? What a number of things, apparently. At first, they heard it. That's verses 1 to 6 of chapter 8. Uh, thus far in this book, there's been some wonderful leadership, but it's all come from the man of action, that is, Nehemiah. But we're now entering a new phase, and it's time to bring in the man of the word. Verse all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And that's exactly what he does. Verse 2, on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand, read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. What a sense of excitement, expectation there must have been as the community gathered together that morning. How is this going to pan out? Imagine they were all wondering. But then up steps Ezra onto that platform that they've seen being built, and he starts reading the, the, the great law of Moses. And they just stand and listen. They heard it. They heard it as a community, all the people, do you notice? There they were, men, women, and children, children of a certain age at least, those who could understand. The whole community was there, too many to squeeze into the temple. They had to meet at the water gate. They heard it with patience. Daybreak till noon. What's that, six hours? That's a decent Bible time, isn't it? Don't know how long you tend to run on a Sunday morning in your particular churches. We're a bit lightweight down in Southampton, about an hour and a quarter, that sort of time. Uh, pretty lightweight. Um, but go to East Africa or South America or South Asia, you, you better be warmed up in an hour and a quarter, just getting going. They heard it with focus. Even with kids around and perhaps blazing sunshine, they still, what, what we're told, listened attentively. And they heard it with reverence. Did you notice that? Verse 5, 
They stood up for it. You know, I, I almost asked the reader today to get us all to stand up as we had chapter eight read to us. And then I chickened out because I thought everyone's looking a little bit like they might not enjoy that very much. And maybe I should have gone for it. <laughs> they did anyway. Verse five. Verse six. They lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. It's not that body posture is important in itself. It's quite possible to be reverent sitting down and irreverent standing up. But it does seem to express something about their hearts, doesn't it? Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They heard the word of God read to them, and they heard it as a community with patience and focus and reverence. But they heard it. Um, I don't know if you've ever been on one of those trains. Uh, this is of my mind, as you understand. The, the, with those announcements that just kind of float over you all the time. Oh, this train is for Carlisle, Glasgow, wherever it is. Calling it Warrington, Wigan, Wolverhampton, Hogwarts, Rivendell, Mordor, Tatooine, whatever those places are. You don't even notice those place names. It just washes over you, doesn't it? You know where you're going. You don't need this running commentary every five minutes. So you just tune out. But I was on a train a couple of years ago, which came to a halt for two hours, somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And when the train manager, as they call them now, a train came around every 20 minutes or so to the carriages, we hung on his every word. We needed to know. He had information which was clearly important to us. Our lives were affected by his updates. And when that's the situation, you listen, don't you? Listening becomes an absolute priority. Do you know that you need God's word. If you don't know that, it will always come low on the priority list. Yes, it might be nice to read the Bible in the morning, but the extra half hour of sleep seems more important. Or the visits to the gym, or the catching up with your social media feed, or whatever it is. The truth is, we need to hang on to the words God speaks and treasure them. And build slowly our understanding of God's will and pleasures and purposes through them. Of course, that's what we're doing today, isn't it? In uh, all this time that we're spending in Nehemiah. That's what I imagine you do most weeks in church. But why Nehemiah? Why whatever book you'll be looking at tomorrow morning in the church? Why not just to have some nice, easy themes? You know, God's love. God's take on climate change, cost of living crisis, tips for a happy marriage, how to thrive as a single person. So much more relevant. Why don't, why don't we just do that kind of thing here at the Partnership Day or in our churches? Answer? Because we want God to set the agenda, not us. And we trust that if we let him do that, by allowing any part of the scripture to speak on its own terms, declaring the whole counsel of God, as Paul puts it in Acts 20, then yes, it will be slightly harder work for us, not as immediately gripping perhaps, 
But in the long term, we will be the stronger for it. Because what we've done is not simply invited God to give us the answers. We've invited God to give us the questions and then the answers. And that will be strengthening for us. So they heard it. And more than that, secondly, they got it. They really got it. Hearing the word of God is a wonderful thing. But the Bible, of course, is not just an educational textbook. It is the primary means used by the Spirit of God to change us into the people he wants us to be. And so what happens alongside the reading is really important. Verse 7 then. The Levites, those people, <laughs> instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving them meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Now, it's hard to know exactly how this worked out, but clearly in the days before these wonderful PA systems, multiple people were needed to relay the, 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 the word. And the, the, these Bible experts here were doing a couple of different things. One is making sure people really understood what they heard. Now, that might have involved translating it from the original Hebrew to the more popular language of Aramaic, perhaps. I don't know how you do it in your churches. We've got lots of international English as a second language people at our church now. So we, are, we now operate a, a simultaneous live translation. Uh, the wonders of technology. People can hear every word of the service on their phones as it's said. It's great, wonderful. Maybe it was translation. Or maybe it was clarifying what the text was actually getting at. Or maybe it was both. They made it clear anyway. Remember, that was a prayer request of the Apostle Paul in his gospel preaching. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. That was part of the job here anyway. But the other part was making sure people got what it really meant. That is, what it meant for their thinking, for their, for their, for their attitudes, for their behavior, the way they lived and the way they spoke, the way they acted towards each other. They needed to know what it meant for them. And the Levites provided that. And again, you think of Paul's words about the scriptures. They're God-breathed and useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. The scriptures were given to impact lives. And so not only did the people hear the words, Thanks to those who served them well that day, they really got it. It sunk in and changed them. I wonder how much value you put on competent Bible teaching in your neck of the woods. And what that looks like in practice. I hope it means that you keep looking for those who could be competent in handling the word of God. Children's leaders don't just need to know how to run a group. They need to know how to handle the Bible. Elders don't need to know, just have, have credibility and respect. They need to be able to teach. Small group leaders need more than just a good-sized lounge, the ability to make a good cup of tea. 
They need to be able to lead others in discovering new things from the word of God. I wonder if that's what you're looking for in your churches as you recruit or recognize people in these ways. I hope it means that you devote resources to training men and women for Bible teaching roles. Whether you do it in-house or using opportunities provided out there. Whether you're supporting people to train as pastors or youth leaders or mission workers. We need to invest in people. If some people can teach themselves or just pick things up by trial and error. But they are the exception. You might be one of them. But if we rely on exceptional people, we'll never really get to hone the gifts that God has given his people. Or we'll risk some of the team going a bit off-piste and developing quirks and unbalanced thinking and so on into, into their ministry. So you must take training seriously. We need people who can teach and teach with clarity. Anybody can teach the Bible and make it complicated. And uh, maybe you've experienced the reality of that yourself. Maybe you are experiencing the reality of that right now. <laughs> Anybody could teach the Bible and make it complicated. Anybody can teach the Bible and make it simplistic and therefore misleading. Anybody can teach the Bible and accidentally teach falsehood. Anybody can teach the Bible and not show the implications. Not quite so many have the gift to teach it clearly and reliably and in a way that people just get it. So we must value those who can. I want to encourage you in your own churches to value those who can and to train those who could and to encourage those who do. I don't know if you're interested in my own journey um, into um, the ministry of the word. It started for me um, with a profound realization of the great need of the people of the world had for the Bible. And the horror as I thought about those who had no way of hearing it or understanding it. I was 19 years old. My future was before me. I was in Bolivia doing a gap year thing. And I came across some missionaries who um, uh, described what they'd done with their adult lives. They shared how there was a tribe in the east of Bolivia who had no access to the Bible. How uh, all the missionaries who had attempted to make contact with this tribe had been slaughtered by them. Uh, but how nevertheless they decided to move in and seek to win the trust of the tribe's people. They'd almost been killed three times by the tribe's people, but somehow in the Lord's good providence had been preserved. They shared how they'd built a house, learned the language and developed relationships. And then having learned the language, they developed a system for writing it down. Next, they had to teach the tribe's people to understand their new written down language, to read it. Then they translated the whole of the New Testament into that language and started getting people to read it. This was the book, the first edition. I brought it along today uh, so you can see it. This was the book that's changed my life more than any other. They then planted a church as people responded to the Jesus they discovered and started teaching and discipling those who'd come to faith. 
all that had taken them about 25 to 30 years of their lives. And I, as I listened to them describe all this, this is what came into my head. I could not think of a better way of using my working years than doing what they had done. I tried. I couldn't think of a better way. I still can't think of a better way. Can you? Now, in the end, I didn't do Bible translation work for various reasons. That's what I thought I'd do through university years. I've given myself to Bible teaching in a UK context. But that was the conviction the Lord built into my heart. And uh, the way in which he has convicted me to do what I do now. I trust different people have different stories and that sort of line. But I guess whatever it is, you and I, we just have that desire, don't we, in some small way, to do our tiny little bit, to get the Bible and its meaning to people who had neither. And I still have that desire. I hope you do too. People need to hear it. They need to get it. Because when they do, they find Jesus. And he's everything. So where are we? They heard it from Ezra. They got it with the help of those teachers. And then you see they loved it. Now, to be fair, that's maybe not what you conclude from their first reaction. They start in tears, presumably tears of sorrow at the sinfulness the word has exposed in their lives. End of verse 9, don't mourn or weep, say the Bible teachers, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. That may be where they start, but it's not where they end. In accordance with instructions from Nehemiah himself, they soon move on to a slap-up party. Grab some food, says Nehemiah, verse 10. Don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So verse 12, and all the people went away to eat, drink, send portions of food to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that have been made known to them. They celebrated. They partied. Why? Because they were just over the moon at being able to hear and grasp God's word. They loved it. And over the years, that reaction has been seen in one person after the other. The former Bishop of Durham, uh, N.T. Wright, um, is, I think, uneven in his teaching and helpfulness. But one thing I love about what he says is the way he describes the place the word of God has in his life. Here's how he put it. The Bible is the book of my life. It's the book I live with, the book I live by, the book I want to die by. Is that how you feel? The Bible is the book of my life. It's the book I live with, the book I live by, the book I want to die by. The story is told of something that happened in the early years of that oil refinery down in Ellesmere Port in Cheshire. You know the one? 
apparently a major fault developed. Alarms went off, the place went into shutdown, and nobody could find the problem. It was awful. They were losing a million pounds a day or something. It was talk of profit warnings, heads rolling, managers up on the fifth floor beside themselves. So they flew in a consultant from Texas. In fact, it turned out to be the, the person who built the oil refinery in the first place. Went straight from the airport to uh, the refinery, looked around various buildings and bits of machinery, and then simply got a piece of chalk out and put an X on one particular part of the assembly, turned around and headed straight back to the airport. That was it. A bit bemused, but sure enough, when they disassembled the equipment right there, uh, that particular piece of equipment uh, was the fault. There it was. It was fixed very quickly, and they were back in business in no time. Next day, the bill came through on the fax machine with them, $10,000. And that was, that was real money in those days. Seemed a bit steep. And the finance clerk who got it queried it and asked for it to be itemized. Sure enough, uh, the fax machine started to whir again. Itemized bill, it said. Piece of chalk, $1. Knowing where to put it. $9,999. The finance guy goes up to the fifth floor to check they're happy to pay it and found them all having a party. Happy, said the manager. What he gave us was priceless. We're back in business and we are celebrating. Again and again around the world, that is the reality that Christians are finding every day. Every day as they read their Bibles, they find their creator God putting an X on some area of their thinking, their behavior, their attitude, something that needs to be put right. And what joy they find having that creator of the universe being their consultant to life itself. This book is priceless. It is worth celebrating. I have to say, it's one of the great privileges of being a pastor, that again and again, I get to see the lights go on in people's minds as they grasp this or that truth of the, of the scriptures. And I find it myself as well. I read the Bible and, and something comes together. I've learned more about God or his plans, or where I fit into them, whatever it is. And it's thrilling. I love it. Let's celebrate hearing and understanding God's word as they did. They heard it, they got it, they loved it, and finally, they lived it. They lived it. Next day, verse 13 the blokes, the heads of the household, come back for extra Bible instruction from Ezra. They wanted to dig deeper, to coin a phrase. And what did they learn? Verse 14, they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim the word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. <clears throat> That is, they discovered that that very month, 
they were meant to be celebrating this feast of booths. That's when the, uh, the people of Israel had a kind of camping in the garden experience to remind themselves of the days when their forebears lived in tents while they were in the wilderness for 40 years. That's what they read. And so that's what they did. Verse 16. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters. Verse 18. They celebrated the festival. They read it. They did it. The being people of the word meant being changed by the word. That's what words are for, isn't it? If somebody tells you your house is on fire, you take action. Somebody tells you that the cost of living is on the rise, you check your budget. Somebody tells you you passed your exams, you celebrate. Someone, this is what words are for. Words change things. And so when you read the Bible on your own in your small group at church, Every time, surely, that word has not really landed in us unless it's actually changed something about us. Maybe just our understanding of things, God, ourselves, the future, whatever it is. Maybe the way we feel about things, our own sin, what God has done for us in Christ. Maybe the way we speak or don't speak or the way we use our time or energy or whatever it is. But it's got to change us because that's what words do. It's what they're for. They heard it. They got it. They loved it. They lived it. They were a people of the word. And so must we be. You know, um, as I read this chapter this week, I found myself thinking of that Nicole Kidman film. Do you know the one, The Interpreter? Have you seen that one? It's an interesting movie. It's a thriller based around the work of the UN. But it's got this kind of running theme all about the power of words. The power of words to bring change. And it builds up to this extraordinary scene where the Nicole Kidman character confronts this brutal dictator and reminds him of words he himself had written years before, when he was still idealistic, I suppose. She quotes him back to himself. These are the words. The gunfire around makes it hard to hear. But the human voice is different from other sounds. It can be heard over noises that bury everything else. Even when it's not shouting. Even when it's just a whisper. Even the lowest whisper can be heard. Over armies. When it's telling the truth. We live in a world of drama and spectacle and image and noise. So much noise. But being people of the word, our conviction is that it's here in the word of God where we will experience the spirit of God and the power of God more than anywhere else. 
And it's that conviction that defines us and marks us out. It's what we wear on our shoelaces. We are people of the word. Godly and wise leadership. Godly and responsive reaction to opposition and the work that needs doing. And a true understanding and appropriate response to the word of God. When those three things happen, we found in Nehemiah, the kingdom of God advances and the glory of God finds people shouting about it.